0: You may be seated. you have your Bible today, turn with me to <coughs> James's letter once again, chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, or the particular text for today is printed on page 9 in your bulletin. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. We pray for a very powerful working of your spirit now among us, our Lord, our God, as we hear and ponder this text and apply it in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, I'm sure most of you at one time or another in your life have encountered a cadaver, a human corpse. I always find this a very uncomfortable experience because when you're around a dead body, they look so much like someone you've known and loved. But, you know, you can argue all day long about whether human beings have a soul, but it's obvious when you're next to a cadaver, something is missing. Something has gone. Something that was there before has been lost, And we feel that loss as just wrenching grief when it's someone that you have loved. Some of you may have actually experienced the feeling of relief. Whatever that thing is, it's gone. And it's a very vivid experience of a distinction that we actually run into all over the place in life, and that's the distinction between the form of a thing and the life of the thing. You know, things you can have of the form of something without necessarily the life of it. Art kind of shows us this. I've seen paintings where it almost feels as if that, that thing in the painting is just going like, to start moving. It's an incredibly realistic form, and yet, of course, it's not alive. Maybe you've ever met someone, and your, your sense after you were with them was, that's a very shallow person. Or we'll sometimes even use the phrase, that is kind of a shell of a person, because you're, you're interacting with them, and you know, they're, they're, they, you know, this is obviously a human being, but that wonderful thing that you encounter when you really kind of get to know someone just feels like it's not there, kind of the lights on nobody's home sort of thing organizations have sometimes form without life. We've all been a part of maybe organizations or had to work with a government bureaucracy, God forbid, where you know it's just an empty apparatus. It's all business. There's no relational life. You just feel like you're kind of one of the gears in the machine. Very impersonal. Religion can have a form without the life. Paul says there are those who have the form of godliness. They do not have its power. The Apostle Paul also says, it is possible to have all knowledge and all faith and be a very, very actively religious person if you do not have love, you are a zero. Very strong language. Now, this few verses I just read is the most controversial part of James's letter, and there are a number of controversial passages, but this is considered the most controversial. But it's weird that it's controversial, really, because the, the main idea here is actually pretty easy to grasp. In fact, I think most of you have probably experienced this at times in your life. Most of you have been around church life for a while. You probably have, have felt this. There is a major difference. This is really all James is saying. There is a major difference between having a form of religion and having a, 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 a form of religious faith and having the life of religious faith. I'm not really into zombies. Like a lot of people are really into zombie films. I'm not. But I find the concept of a zombie very interesting because a zombie has a human form. But whatever it is that's making that thing gyrate and do this, you know, with his eyes rolled back in his head, that thing is not alive. It has a human form, but it is not, it doesn't have a life of humanity within it, and it is possible to have a zombie faith. You can have religious forms. And I'm not dissing these at all. These are good things. But here are like religious forms. You can talk about God. You can talk about truth questions. You can talk about morality questions. You can recite creeds, sing songs, pray prayers, stir feelings in meetings. You can run programs, build institutions. You can keep traditions. You can set boundaries. And doing all of that, and it's all good stuff, in your life, As you work out the standards and the priorities of your actual living, you can treat people like they don't matter. In fact, James is saying in this chapter, you can actually be merciless to the very people that Jesus came to seek and to save, and to help, and to heal, and to befriend. You, be bl- you can be a very religious person doing all the things I just mentioned and be blind to people, callous to people, indifferent to people, too busy for people, impatient, harsh, unforgiving, even abusive. And James's point in the text is very simple. You've got faith without works, your faith is dead. Very strong stuff. I just want to talk for a few minutes today about the two things. Number one, good works, good works, they prove our faith, and secondly, they perfect our faith. And I just want to kind of talk about what that means. Just open this up, and I really would like us just to just kind of open our hearts to this. It's been really working on me this week. Now, what do you suppose has made this text controversial? Somebody look at verse 24. Look at verse 24. You got your bulletin? Don't be lazy. You know, we've got to work together a little bit here. Get your, get your text. What's it say, verse 24? Why do you think this text has caused a lot of fuss for people? What's the problem? Verse 24. I'll read it. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, why would that be controversial? Somebody tell me. It sounds like the, opposite sounds like the exact opposite of what Paul teaches. And what's that, brother? We are, we are justified by faith alone without works. I mean, you almost couldn't have it be more on the surface, more, you know, identically opposite, right? Right superficially at least, on the level of just the words, I mean, this seems to completely contradict another major teaching of the New Testament, which is that we believe that we have right standing with God without any works of our own because of what Jesus has done, period. We believe in that, that's it. But that problem, that apparent contradiction, I think actually kind of evaporates as we read the text historically and pastorally. So I want to just note note something, first of all, historical here. When's James writing this letter? Um, James is writing his letter before the debate breaks out in the book of Acts about whether Gentiles who have come to faith in Jesus need to do Jewish works in order to be saved. In other words, for the, these Gentiles to be really regarded as saved people who have received God's salvation and are numbered among his people, they have to do Jewish works. Specifically, they have to get circumcised, they have to observe Jew, Jewish dietary laws and maybe Jewish feast dates. That sort of thing. Now, that was the, what led to that whole debate in Acts 15, where the whole church kind of got together and had to discuss this, because, you know, for the first time, Gentiles are coming and being part of the people of God. Do they need to be circumcised? And it's very interesting, in that later debate, guess who said the answer is no? Well, Paul, you'd expect. Paul said, no way do you have to be circumcised as a Gentile to be saved. You believe in Jesus, that's enough. Guess who also said the same thing? James. They agreed. They agreed. Gentiles do not need to do Jewish works of the law in order to be saved and numbered among God's people. So historically, James is writing before all that kind of breaks out. And if you look closely, he's answering here a very different question than that later question, as important, really important as that is. So we can look at the text pastorally. And if you look at the text kind of thinking about James's pastor's heart, it's really obvious what he's getting at here. And what's crazy is Paul gets at this very thing in his letters, too. And the question that James is wrestling with is not whether the Gentiles have to do Jewish works of the law in order to be numbered among God's people and receive God's salvation. James is wrestling here with the question, do God's people, being God's people, act like it? That's the question. Not whether you need to do works of the law in order to be among God's people, but assuming you are among God's people, do you act like it? Do, you know, is there? Do our lives actually justify this claim that I'm a child of God? I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Okay, fine. Does your life actually justify that claim? That's what he's asking. And it's interesting. I, I you know, as a pastor, you got to be a little bit careful with people. You don't make it feel like you're machine gunning them with you know hard truths. So, so James takes an interesting tack here. He, he opens up this question through a very intense conversation with an imaginary reader. So he doesn't just like, you know, draw the crosshairs on anyone. He's actually reading the letter, but he, he, he imagines a reader uh, in verse 15, and he, he, he creates this kind of extreme hypothetical. So let's begin with that and just kind of walk with James through what he does here. And he gives this extreme situation, and he says, let me suppose that a brother or sister among you all didn't have enough clothing and food, and one of you, so he creates this imaginary reader. He says, let me just throw out this crazy hypothetical. Suppose there's someone who doesn't have enough food or clothing, and they come, and that you see the need, and your response is, you know, go in peace. Be warmed and filled. Something is pretty obviously missing. If you're a follower of Jesus, and you see like, basic human needs, and you substitute a kind of faith blessing, you know, go your way, be warmed and filled, a kind of a faith blessing, you substitute that for really helping people. I mean, I could illustrate it like this. Let's suppose it's a freezing cold January day, and you're driving past my house, and your car dies, and, and you are out there, and it's like blizzard conditions, and you walk up on my front porch, and you knock on my door, and you are out of gas, or your car is broken down, and let's say you're out of gas, and you're freezing, you know, you're stamping your boots, and you're, you're shivering on my front porch, you're like, you know, Pastor Miller, could I just, you know, I just, I need maybe, I need to get to a gas station, and I say, brother, you have come to the right place, I love you, and I'm going to pray for you right now, in fact, come in, let me just put my hands on your shoulders a minute, let me just, Father in heaven, I thank you for my brother. I thank you you brought into my door so we could pray about this situation together. And I just ask you, Lord, to give this brother your strength, Lord, and, and just have your, your spirit help him to get down to that shell station a couple of miles from here. And I just pray you'll give him the strength, Lord. And I'm just calling upon you, Lord, to move in him and to give him the strength to get that gas can and carry it back here to his car. And I pray that his car will start and all will be well. About this point in the prayer, you'd be looking at me like, Pastor, is your neighbor at home? This is not what I need right now. I love your faith. I kind of just need some gas. You don't even need to be a Christian to see how stupid that is. But James goes after this. He says, how can you, in a situation like that, claim... Now, you know, he's, he's using an extreme situation because he's trying to get us to see the point. How could you possibly claim to believe in Israel's God... We're talking about a God who made the world so full of good things out of generosity for his creature, who broke the chains of the slaves of Egypt, who fed his people for 40 years with manna out of heaven in the wilderness, brought water out of a rock. He cares for the orphan, the widow, the slave, the, the downtrodden, the stranger. How could you say you believe in that God? How could you say you believe in his Messiah, Jesus? I mean, Jesus, who went about healing lepers and, you know, feeding thousands and, 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 and acts like this. I mean, are you seriously going to say you're a Christian and do this? Oh, but I'm under grace, pastor. Are you really going to use the grace, the generosity, the love of God to justify this kind of behavior? And he just hits it right, he just gut punches it in verse 17. He says, if, if that's who you are, imaginary reader, your faith is dead. Your faith is dead. Whoa. It's interesting in verses 18 and 19, he, he anticipates immediate pushback. Your faith is dead. What if I said to you, can you imagine if I said to you today, I walked up and I kind of evaluated your life for a few minutes and I said to you, I think your faith is dead. You'd be like, you know, that doesn't go over super well. And you anticipate some pushback. I just want to say, I think actually maybe a better way of rendering the uh, the, the language here would be, Verse 18, but someone will say, eliminate the quotation marks and just insert the word that before you. But someone will say that you have faith and I have works. Now remember, he's still talking to this imaginary reader who just let this poor person walk off into the snow with no food and clothing. And he says, Look, I can imagine somebody looking at this situation where I'm kind of accusing you of having dead faith. And I can imagine somebody saying, Now, James, don't be judgy. Verse 18, someone could say, Look, you have faith, and I have works. You know, someone could step into this situation where I'm kind of going after you, and they could say, look, man, you know, speaking about you, the, this imaginary reader, you know, your faith is totally real. I can't judge your heart. And in fact, who am I to judge you by my standard of works? You know, James was kind of a, he was a little bit hardcore about works. He was very into the Torah. He was one of those early Christian leaders who was really serious about obeying God's law. And he says, look, I can imagine someone saying, oh no, you know, this brother, this sister over here who's acting like this, they have real faith, James. And, and you're, you know, you're kind of one of the works Christians and they're one of the grace Christians. And you know, you kind of, you have your whole holiness thing over here you're concerned about, but you know, let's all calm down. In fact, James, you know, maybe <laughs> you have works. Maybe your faith is a little suspect. Seems like you really prioritize works, brother. Sounds kind of like maybe what you're saying is people really need to have their moral act together before they can really be comfortable calling themselves Christians. That kind of sounds like, you know, maybe you're kind of tampering with the free, freeness of grace, James. James says at the end of verse 18, fine, here's my answer to that, dear reader. You say you believe in Jesus. You show me you really believe in Jesus without any works. Okay? Fine. Show me you're a believer in Jesus with no works. I'll show you, my, I'll authenticate my faith in Jesus by my works. I'll show you I'm a serious believer in Jesus Christ by my works. You know, as an aside, non Christians really get this, don't they? You probably have had something like this from a non Christian in your life where they will say to you, You know, you say you, you have real faith in this real God, this real Savior, this real Lord. And you can kind of get the sense, people often, you know, outside the church, they look at us and they're like, you know, are we really supposed to be impressed? What difference does your God really make? What good does your faith do? What good does all this theology do? What good do these high moral principles do? How do we know if there's any real reality in this gospel you're always talking about? And what are they after when they sort of hint at that? You know, non-Christians couldn't care less, most of them, how how you're justified before God. They're not even interested in the question. Most non-Christians don't even believe in God, so they don't care how you think you're right with God. They don't care about how you're justified before God. Here's what they're concerned about. They want you to justify yourself before them. They want you to justify your Christian faith and all this theology and these high moral principles, so justify that to us by doing something. What does it do? How does it change the way you treat people, how you actually live and love in the world? That, you know, Non-Christians, kind they, they, they dial into that. Well, then, James, you'll notice, beginning in verse 19, he, anticip- uh, he, he there, there's kind of an unspoken, desperate move by this hypothetical reader. So James has said to this reader, this hypothetical reader, your faith is dead, they've come back with this, well, maybe someone could say, you know, you have faith, I have works. And then the, this hypothetical reader seems to sort of do something interesting in verse 19, and James responds. There's a kind of desperate move where this reader seems to have pointed as proof not to their works, but to their theology. Oh, James, James, you know, you said prove my faith. I'll prove my faith. I have great theology. I believe that the Lord our God is one. I adhere to the basic creed of the Judeo-Christian faith, which is hero Israel, Shema Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. I hold to that. In fact, I've read the Reformers, James. I've read the evangelical theologians. I'm, I, I am theologically Very literate, and I I absolutely sign on to all of it. That seems to be what was said in the background. In verse 19, James says, you believe that God is one. You have orthodox theology. And boy, this is just hard. He says, if orthodoxy is all you've got, if accurate beliefs is all you've got, may I just remind you, there are a few places in all of reality that are more orthodox than hell. The demons are mighty good theologians. And you know the difference? They shudder. They shudder. I was talking with a young man Friday night who was talking about a lot of worship services he's been where what is so troubling to him is there is no sense whatsoever in this worship that anyone in this room trembles before God. Shudders. You know what shuddering is? It's like, I am undone. That's shuddering. James says, let me talk about the theology in hell. They, they shake. They have a response. They do something with their theology. How much more response should be evoked from people who don't need to shudder before God like that? Because they know God is Father, to the saving work of Jesus Christ. How much more response should be even more than the demons, far more than the demons? There's an interesting interview recently between Jordan Peterson and Jonathan Peugeot, an Orthodox uh, Christian. And there's, a, you probably have, some of you have seen this. Uh, it's a very moving moment in the interview where Jordan Peterson is talking about Christ. You know, Peterson, one of his big things is m- myths. He's very into world myths. And he's, he's struggled, as C.S. Lewis did with the question of how the myths relate to Christianity. And he he says, at one point in the interview, in tears, he says, what you have in the figure of Christ is an actual person who actually lived, so you have history, plus a myth. And in some sense, Christ is a union of those two things. It reminds me so much of C.S. Lewis saying, Christ is the true myth, But listen to what Peterson goes on to say. He says, the problem is, I probably believe that, but I'm amazed at my own belief, and I don't understand it. It seems to me to be oddly plausible, but I still don't know what to make of it, partly because it's too terrifying a reality to fully believe. I don't even know what would happen to you if you fully believed it. This man who, as far as we know, has never openly professed faith in Jesus Christ, he's grasped something about the nature of true faith. Let me speak for a moment about the fact that good works don't just prove our faith, they perfect our faith. Beloved, what is faith? Beloved, what is faith? I think one way of thinking about faith is that faith is personally coming to terms with the reality of reality. It is personally coming to terms... With the reality of reality. It's coming alive from the core of your being to God and His presence and His purposes that they are real and they are here and they are working. And those, God's presence and His purposes, they've centered on Jesus Christ, whom He has sent. He is the Messiah of Israel, He is the Savior of the world. And and it's just coming awake. That's the man, that is what's going on. That is the reality in which we are all living. And faith just like wakes up. It's coming awake to the to God's reign in the world. He, he reigns, he has a kingdom, and it is being built. The basic confession of Christian faith is what? What's the basic confession of the Christian faith? Does it doesn't get any more basic than this? Jesus is Lord. And faith believes that. Faith like, is awake to the fact that I am living under the reign of the Son of God. It's, it's, a, it's a living, active, relational response to God's living, active, relational initiative in Jesus Christ. And so the question, beloved, if, you, if that has really gotten into, your, into your, the core of your being and you're awake to it, James is asking a very serious question. How can you have that faith and do nothing? How can it not change the way you live? Now, I notice I did not ask, how can you have religion and do nothing? You can have a lot of religion in your life and not have this kind of faith, not be awake, <laughs> not be alive from the core of your being to the fact that I am living in God's presence under God's purposes, His kingdom rule. You can have a lot of religion and never get anywhere near that. But if you have this faith, you know this is true. This is true. Then James would want us to ask, then how can you not care about people? How can they not matter to you? How can you carry on, if you have that faith, a middle-class, comfortable, church-going life and not feel the weight of needs? Not feel the weight of spiritual blindness in people? moral darkness the weight of broken relationships the weight of economic oppression the weight of social outcasting and devaluation of people marginalizing of people how can you not feel when you see it bondage and hopelessness and grief and pain and exhaustion and friendlessness how can you have that kind of water and be unmoved by thirst that's his point to this new Israel. And the clincher of that whole argument is in verse 26 as the body without the spirit is dead. The cadaver's dead. So faith apart from works is dead. It's a twist actually on the body spirit analogy. I it made my head spin when I first really started studying this because I would have reversed it. I would have said that love works is the body and faith is the spirit. That, you know, we do outward things, but what animates them is the faith. And it's like, almost like James inverts that, and he says, actually, the thing you need to remember, though, is the possibility of cadaver faith, of zombie faith. That you might actually have religious forms, all of these externals of faith. You might have doctrinal forms, and liturgical forms, and institutional forms, and moral forms, without a pulse. Without that irrepressible outward movement of love and mercy that comes from a heart in which the Father's love and mercy have been implanted, which is the whole reason why he's writing the letter. Faith is alive. It is a living thing, and he was on to point out here it's in living that, you know, if here's maybe one way of thinking about it, I'm alive, so it's rumored anyway. I'm alive and it's in living that my life is completed, is fulfilled, is matured, is, dare I say, perfected. It comes into completeness. And that's faith. He says faith is, it is in living, it is in working, it is in doing that faith is, the word he uses is, perfected or matured. Or I would use the, uh, the word fully actualized. Faith is, in, in a sense, a living potency that then actualizes in what? In works of love. Loving God, loving our neighbor. Love is the very life by which faith lives. And he points out Abraham and Rahab. And they're examples of this. You probably know these stories. They believed in God. They, they, they figured out, Abraham figured out that God was God and that God's promises were true years before he offered Isaac. Rahab figured out, I don't know, you know, the, 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 the Canaanites knew 40 years before Israel finally invaded Canaan that they were coming. And Rahab probably grew up with that on the news all the time. And she figured out long before she sheltered the spies that Joshua sent that this God was God and these people were his people. They had faith long before these works for which they're remembered. But it was through those works, Abraham's radical surrender of his son, Rahab's risking actually death in her existing social order in order to take care of these spies in Jericho, those works... It was in those works that their faith came to full expression. I want to talk about that more next week, but I'll leave it for now. Let me begin to kind of wrap up here. We've talked about James's conversation with these, this reader, but now I want to just ask you guys, and really ask you to think about this for a minute. I mean, this really, really matters. Is your faith living? Is your faith living? And I want to do two things as we kind of move to the end here. I want to, I want to encourage you and I want to exhort you. Let me encourage you with this. As you live your faith, you're living something that God made alive. That's really hopeful. Living faith is God's implanted gift. You remember when he said back in chapter 1, receive with meekness God's implanted word which is able to save your souls. God brought us forth by his word of truth. In other words, God didn't just bring the good news about Jesus and all God is doing through Jesus. He didn't just bring that to you externally where your ears heard it. He planted that within you. He he gave you the gift of faith. And if God gave you that gift of faith, beloved, he's going to bring forth the life of faith. And I think we actually underestimate as Christians just how much God's gonna do that. How much perfecting God is going to do. How much completing and actualizing God can do in our lives. How much God can produce in us. What the gospel can actually do. I want to read briefly something that my dear friend Joe Minnick wrote, which I think just describes this so beautifully. And it's what keeps us from seeing works as a way of like somehow trying to earn something with God. It's it's not that at all. It's just the life that God has put within us coming forth. Listen to how Joe describes this. He says, people are sincerely capable of more than they think. Or perhaps better stated, people can be drawn into being capable of more than they imagine. The most attractive souls, the best-willed leaders, summon what is ordinarily numb and sleeping inside of us. Like, that's what great souls and great leaders do. They summon from you what otherwise would be numb and asleep inside of you. But then notice what Joe says. He says, responsibility, like responsibility to do good works in this light is not some mountain climb that promises our eventual catching up to the posse of the godly. (laughs) Rather, taking responsibility and doing good works, it's the exhale of the healed soul. I love that. That has been summoned out of its self-consuming in-curve and projected into the task of self-giving. Do you guys find that you have an in-curve? Man, I've got an in-curve. And when my soul exhales under the influence of God's grace, is is projected out into self-giving, that is grace at work. And and he says, God's mercy will never leave us alone. He will never leave us alone. Man, I feel like sometimes God just keeps hitting me with a two-by-four to kind of break open my, you know, the possibilities of love in Ben Miller. God will never leave us alone because that would be to refuse healing us. This is the chief spiritual insight in the Reformation view of good works. They do not merit salvation. They just are the experience of a particular aspect of salvation, which is the exhale of God's life-giving spiritual in-breath. Now, it's a little flowery maybe, but it's just so beautiful. Good works are the exhale of God's grace that has been breathed into us. Be encouraged. You don't even know what good works God will and can do as he perfects your faith in the life of works. But I want to close by exhorting us, and I'm going to do a whole sermon next week on more along this line. Let me just wrap up with this, and this is important. I, when you think about good works, because let's get practical for a minute here, I think one of the problems when we think about good works is that we think of good works mostly in terms of relief. The situation that James mentioned here is a relief situation. Someone needs food and clothing. And I think when modern evangelical Christians think about good works, they think about relief projects. And I think we need to step back from that. God wants us to think about doing good works, I believe, more in terms not just of relief, but of restoration through relationships. Let me just say what I mean. Anybody can throw money at a problem. It's so North American to be like, the poor throw money. That's relief. Sometimes it's needed. Anybody can serve at a soup kitchen, and that's super valuable. Anybody can attend a walk for life, and that's valuable. Those are all expressions of relief. But if we really believe biblically that all misery is a result of what sin has done to relationships, we need to ask whether our relationships are in a state where we can contribute to restoring the relational lives of other people in need. That's what's really needed people's lives need to be restored at the level of their relationships, or you can throw money and relief aid at things, dare I say, even tons of government programs at things all you want, and there's not actually restoration. But is are our, our lives, not just individually, but in communities, are our relationships such that we're then able to truly contribute to that restoration of the relational lives of other people? Our ability to restore others flows from what Christ is doing in our own relationships. I'll put it this way. Jesus did not decide that he was going to start a mercy ministry, although he did do a lot of mercy ministry. He started a church. You guys realize how different that is? He could have just created an entire organization that went about feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and you know providing medicine for the sick and that would you know that's part of that's part of it i'm not downplaying that at all but he started his restoration project was to start a church to start a community of rebuilt restored renewed relationships and if you think about your life this is obvious i think about this all the time as a pastor if my marriage is not healthy in the gospel if sarah and i are not doing well my good works are limited If you do not have a healthy marriage, you are not going to be able to do certain good works because you cannot help other people restore when you're the one who needs the doctor. If you're at war with your kids... Or, you know, maybe more, more likely here in, in our North American uh, context, if your kids are growing up and they have been trained by the habits of your household, that they only exert themselves when there's some kind of obvious benefit for them? I know so many Christian kids who are like this. The only time you can inspire them to do anything is when there's something in it for them. If that's your kids, or you're just at war with your kids, guess what you cannot do as a family? You cannot work with your children to bless and do good works. And you cannot do the kinds of good works that only you and your children can do together. Right? Can we just get real about that? We stunt our good works when our own relational lives are not being blessed and healed and restored by the gospel. If you're running up debt, there are good works you cannot do. Some of you kids need to think about this. If you rack up $80,000 of school debt, you will not be able to do certain good works for Jesus. You need to think about that. If you are overworking so that you're depleted and you're cranky and everything's an interruption, you cannot do certain good works. Your relational life is not in order, and that's why you cannot do good works, certain good works. If our friendships are shallow, then the kinds of mighty good works we can do together as friends are not going to happen, are they? Because it's just you and it's me and our little circles, and we can't join the circles to do anything for Jesus. If our church life ends up being more about silly politics and about loving one another, then our church will not do certain good works. If people come to church or they sit on a live stream and they watch church and they kind of hope that Pastor Miller will be, you know, on fire today and we'll get our little inspirational boost from the sermon today rather than coming here because we are here to stir each other up to love and good works and to serve God together in a way we cannot alone, then certain good works will not happen. We don't only need charitable giving, though we need charitable giving to truly do good works. Beloved, we need, as God's people, healed, restored, enlivened by His grace, we need to build cultures in which needs are always on our radar and in which relationships and resources are available that can minister to those needs, and it all comes from faith. It all comes from our relationship to God and his grace and his love and his favor and his power and his wisdom and his joy. That is the call of the church. Next week I'm going to preach a whole sermon, Lord help me, on faith and social justice. See how that goes. Father in heaven, we ask you to bless these things to our lives and to our relationships in Jesus' good name. Amen.